This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. We're always looking for new ideas and topics from our listeners, so please reach out, share your ideas. You can email us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com or connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and you can find links to all that in the show notes. Now, on to this week's episode. It used to be easy to project based on history, right? And all of a sudden, the history was just not relevant anymore. You had to start almost from scratch. Now, knowing that we have this, we got the organization leadership to acknowledge this looks like where we're going to land these much lower use rates. Well, what does that mean? And how do we grow? Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Durin. Today, I get to chat with Allison Rogers, who's the Senior Vice President of Strategy at Ballad Health. Their headquarters is in Johnson City, Tennessee, and they have hospitals really across Northeast Tennessee and Southwest Virginia. I asked Allison to share her perspective because they serve a pretty diverse, both small, urban, and really rural markets. They're three years into a pretty unique merger journey where local governments and communities have been really involved. The focus for today is going to be understanding emerging priorities as we hopefully turn a corner into a new chapter of COVID-19 and thinking about the role strategy leaders must play as they try to realize these new goals. Allison, strategy teams had to lean into pretty new roles during COVID surges that created both new challenges, new learning opportunities, but also an opportunity to build some new competencies and really bring your expertise to new parts of the organization. How'd that play out for your team and what are some of the lasting impacts? Well, Trevor, I appreciate the opportunity to, to share our experience. And I would say a couple of things. I think we struggled a little bit, honestly, on the front end, engaging strategy into the emergency operations. Luckily, I do have a project management office that reports up to me as well. And so they were vital. I honestly don't think our emergency operations would have been nearly as smooth or as organized. They brought a lot of rigor and structure to the process. They were immensely helpful. That was a great component that our department was able to offer. On the more challenging side, one of the things that COVID highlighted for us as an organization, we have lots of opportunity in the data governance side and in the analytics side. And that became very clear when we would have all these different reports and they had different numbers of how many COVID patients do we have? How many ICU patients? How many beds do we have available? Where are these patients? That was a real challenge right out the gate. And we had a hard time engaging the emergency operations team to trust the analytics and create a data steering team. It actually took several months. It was a little bit painful, but we did create a data steering committee that supported all the emergency operations, continues to support. We did work on automating some of those reports, validating those reports. And we really tried to use that to leverage the data governance needs for the organization. Because we actually ended up up completing an epic go live during COVID. We thought we didn't have enough other things to deal with. And so unfortunately, that was one that we had to power through. But now that we're on the other side of that, it just further enhances. We've really got a lot of work to do on the data governance side. And sometimes it takes a bad situation to highlight the needs for that. That's one thing that COVID did for us. And we did get 
some more organizational buy-in in that space. We're really trying to leverage that. We've got now more engagement and focus on the exciting things around data glossaries and central intake processes and validation processes. But it's necessary work because you can't get to an analytic center of excellence without having that foundation. We're building towards that slowly but surely, but COVID really helped to illustrate to the organization the need and the power that comes along with those data functions. That was one bit of bright light behind it all. That stuff would only seem sexy to SG2 members and to our listeners. I think our listeners view it as the cool stuff. Sometimes strategy's role is to just be kind of a steady hand on the wheel, right? And not let the organization get distracted from longer term priorities. Right now, 2021, for the near term, strategy teams that I've talked to are really driving the growth agenda. What are your growth priorities and how strategy going to guide the organization to realize those opportunities? I'll take a little step back and just reflect a little bit on how we were managing our strategies during COVID. We run a July 1 to June 30 fiscal year. Right when COVID hit is right when we were trying to get ready to roll out our next year's strategic annual goals and what we're going to work on. And of course, it got delayed and so forth. And we ended up really having to redo it, really narrow it down and prioritize. And that's one advantage that COVID brought to us, I think, from a strategic perspective. We have so many things we want to accomplish as a system, and it's really hard to narrow those down and to prioritize them. So COVID did that for us. COVID was the priority. I really wanted to make sure we were making a little bit of progress in some of these other areas, but we had to really trim back that annual plan and make it very relevant. I didn't want to seem like we're coming out of left field and have no appreciation for what the operations of the organization was having to deal with. We did retool it. We trimmed it down. And even as we went through the year, we had to keep revisiting that annual plan and saying, are these still realistic goals? Are we still going to be able to accomplish all these growth initiatives that we have in place? And then there's other ones, creating a center for post-COVID care, for example, that we didn't have in the annual plan that made its way into the annual plan six months into it because it was something that we began to see as an opportunity and a need from the community's perspective. We had to be really agile during the course of the year and adjust our strategies to accommodate that. As I now think about what does the next fiscal year look like, I'll say that one of the first things that we had to struggle doing as we're trying to move through COVID is understand what does the demand impact look like on the other side? We use a lot of data from you guys and layered on a lot of it. We have a very aggressive Medicare Advantage market in our community. When we layered all that on, we realized that those inpatient use rates and that utilization that we experienced early on in COVID, when we were consciously pulling back on elective surgeries and patients were so fearful to go out for services, you know, our volumes just tanked. And of course, they came later on with the later surges in the fall and in the winter. But I use that example to say we really struggled as an organization at that point with those volumes. As we've tried to think about as we come through this, what does life look like on the other side of this? Those demand projections will, in a couple of years, look close to what it was like living through COVID because we are having so many shifts to risk-based contracts. and We've been so aggressive in, in the value-based world. I really do think those inpatient use rates are going to continue to drop in our service area. I say all that because you have to sort of understand what is our market going to look like. And that's one of the hardest things that we had to do was really try and, you know, it used to be easy to project based on history. And all of a sudden, the history was just not relevant anymore. You had to start almost from scratch. 
now knowing that we got the organization and leadership to acknowledge this looks like where we're going to land these much lower use rates, what does that mean? And how do we grow? We actually have initiated some additional conversations on growth and we're developing a framework to think about it. Some of it is more defensive growth. So thinking about those more traditional hospital-based services, how can we continue to grow service lines and technologies and, and those sorts of things. Some of it is internal performance. We have a lot of value-based contracts, but we don't necessarily bring as many dollars in through those. If we just improved our patient satisfaction scores or we improve readmission rates or close more gaps in care, you know, can actually improve the dollars that the organization can bring in through existing mechanisms. And the third bucket is really new growth and external growth. And what are the new services and the new geographies? That's where we're trying to spend a lot of our time, actually all three buckets, but that last bucket is the one we're spending a lot of time focusing in on. One area that we started to really engage with, and this has been one that I've been trying to engage the organization with for a number of years, which is virtual health. So that one certainly came through loud and clear during COVID. We focused a lot on ramping up a virtual, basically urgent care type of services. And so that was great. Once we started to see patients coming back in, they were a little more comfortable to come back in for in-person care. We started to see those numbers trail off a little bit. I have been a firm believer for a long time that virtual health is the place that we need to go towards COVID, if nothing else, showed that there's absolutely a market and a willingness for our patients and an appropriate place for them to receive that kind of care, especially when I think about value and I think about improving outcomes and experience and reducing costs all at the same time. And I've said this so many times, we are a society now where I can be sitting at night watching TV and I can shop for my groceries and have them delivered to my house. I can just get whatever I it is that I want on Amazon and it shows up at my door the next day. Why would I want to spend two hours in a provider's office just waiting to receive care? We don't like that experience anywhere else in our lives. I'm not sure why we think that healthcare is different. There's a time and place for in-person care. Don't get me wrong, but there's an amazing amount of opportunity within virtual and we have dabbled in it and we really need to be embracing it more so than we have in the past. I tried to tell our team that every other health system is now going to have virtual health on their strategic plan where it may not have been a competitive thought that Teladoc or whoever could be seeing our patients, that's probably happening. And the most concerning thing is I have no visibility into how much of that activity is actually happening because I don't have the data to show me how many virtual visits are actually happening in my community. I have your data, which shows me that there's about 2 million visits that could be happening in my community over the next 10 years, but I have no idea how many are actually happening and where they're going. And I know our portion of that is pretty darn small. That's sort of a hidden threat. And that worries me a lot. You have to flip that and think about it as opportunity. And so we're working hard to really get our providers to embrace it. And hopefully we'll start to get some more momentum around this. And the other piece I'll tie in here when we think about growth is we're thinking about that digital journey and the digital engagement of providers. If you're on an app and you're searching for back pain, do you need to see a provider? Here's the type of provider you might need to see. And here's a link to be able to set up your own appointment and maybe even do a virtual visit. That's probably a bad example. But I think that there's so many opportunities if you follow that train of thought to, in a smart way, think about what is it patients are looking for and how can we deliver that in a more real-time, on-demand basis where it's appropriate and makes sense. I think that's fair. That looks different than it would have looked, let's say, 18 months ago, the way strategy was playing a role in that. 
Another place that strategy is trying to step up and play a different role is around workforce challenges. I mean, it's just an unavoidable topic right now. It's keeping executives up at night. Besides workforce planning, strategy hasn't necessarily always been the one who's tried to engage around the issue of burnout and workforce engagement. How can the strategy team maybe use elements of the plan or how can you bring people in to help them understand their connection to the overall mission and goals of the organization? That's a struggle lots of organizations have is how to make those strategies meaningful. And I'm not going to say we've cracked the nut on it. I do try to be very intentional with prioritizing and keeping a short list of the things that we're working on. Again, I'm not going to say I'm always successful at that. I have the best intentions, but there's lots of things that we want to do as an organization. And a couple things that come to mind from the strategy side, Ballot is three years old, I think about a year and a half into our formation. We actually use the environmental scenario planning process. We worked with you guys and and went through that to help us think through what are those common strategies that would make sense no matter what sort of scenario comes to fruition. It was a really helpful exercise for us. And we came out of that with some concrete strategic themes. And our next step was really to formalize those and get them in a place where we could communicate those to the team and to our community and then attach to those some objectives. How do we measure success? in this space and show people if this is our goal, well, how far and how fast are we going to get there so they could have that appreciation. We didn't get through all that because of COVID. That work had to stop. And so we're re-engaging with that work right now. I am very hopeful that coming through the pandemic, that being able to offer clarity for the organization and our team members, being able to reassure them that they are indeed critical to our success. And by looking at things like being in a great place to work, an employer of choice, by having them being able to see themselves in that and recognize that those other three goals that we have out there, we can't do without them. I hope they're inspirational. We need that as an industry and as an organization now more than ever, because there is so much burnout and it's really just sad and it's frustrating to watch and feel like you can't do anything about it. I look at the tools that are available to me or that I can offer the organization. And I think trying to guide the strategy and making sure that we're articulating that and our team can see that and they feel inspired by that. And so that we can come through this and we have a clarity of vision of what now. And so I want to be able to deliver that very clearly and in a powerful way. This is a really, really critical time to be messaging those kinds of things to our team members. You're absolutely right. I'm sure we both have just provider friends, right? And so you get to hear the anecdotal stuff and it's scary and hard to even feel like I can sympathize because I don't have to do it every day. And I'm thankful for that. Taking it up another higher level, SG2 talks a lot about the promise of scale. That's been a theme for a few years. It's continuing to be a theme. That's been a big focus for Ballot as well for the past few years. What were some of the challenges as the pragmatic, data-driven, thoughtful planning efforts that your team and our teams together created met the reality of community perception? I know how some of this played out in your market. It was tough. So I want to hear some of the lessons learned. Yeah, some of the worst stories. When I think about before the merger, especially from a planning perspective and very pragmatic in the data view, we did some what we consider white paper views. We looked at the community. What does the community truly need? Because for our perspective, what we have in our situation was a merger of two regional health systems that had the same geography. There was a lot of overlap between the two systems. I used to live in Atlanta and I came up to this community. And to give you an idea of how intense the competition 
competition is between the two legacy regional health systems. When I moved up here, we actually had three trauma centers. So Atlanta had one trauma center. I come up here and there are two level one trauma centers within 30 minutes of each other. And there's another level two trauma center in the region as well. And in the community that I moved to, it's a smaller town, is less than 20,000 people. There's about 65,000 in the county. There were two hospitals and, of course, half utilized. The thing that surprised me the most, two hospitals with two helicopters. So I had two helicopters sitting in my community with really a handful of people. You can envision the rest from there. It was great to have an opportunity from a planning perspective to say, let's just step back for a second. Let's look at what's truly needed. And then how do we get from where we are to there? It is absolutely one thing to see it on paper. It is absolutely an entirely different animal to actually move forward with those sorts of things, especially in a rural community. There's a lot of ownership by the community, not formal ownership, but informal ownership. It's definitely the large employer in the communities, and they really embrace their facilities. And it's really challenging to share with them these very complicated trends that are going on in healthcare and to explain to them why you don't have a problem driving 30 minutes to get to the Hobby Lobby in the next town over. It shouldn't be that big of a deal to drive there to get open heart surgery or to access your trauma services. But it is really amazing. These communities can be very reticent to that. And they've had these services for a long time. And so they view it as you're taking something away from me. We had a lot of very difficult community conversations. We did have some active individuals in the community that were not big proponents of what we were trying to do. That made it all the more challenging. You guys always say this is hard work, and I'm here to tell you it's harder than you can imagine. You always say communication, and I will echo that. You cannot over-communicate. But at the same time, it's a challenging situation to be in because you know as planners what the trends are showing you and you know what what makes sense, but getting the community to come alongside of that when they're viewing it as you're taking something away from me is just immensely challenging. It was rough and we did manage to work through some of those things. I think in some ways, for better or for worse, because of COVID, we were able to show the community what the merger really enabled us to do because you had the two health systems that had come together. We were able to share resources. We were able to quickly figure out how to get resources to write parts of the organization, how to provide that corporate structure to support them in terms of predictive models and where are the patients coming from and how best to serve them and all of those things that I could not imagine being in a competitive environment trying to get through COVID and figure out how to work together with your health departments and all these parties that you don't really know. Because we had merged, it really gave us a leg up. And so we were able to spend more of our time thinking about how are we communicating with the community and how do we become the trusted source of information about what's happening with COVID and how to respond and those sorts of things. That was immensely helpful. I hate to say, but we gained a lot of community trust. So we kind of had that first two years of trying to work through some of those service line redistributions, and we still have plenty of work left to do in that space. But COVID and the great work that we were able to do and show the community why the merger ended up being a good thing has really benefited us. And so now it's as we turn our attention back to growth and what those declining inpatient use rates mean for us, and there's still a lot of work left to be done in the service line redistribution space 
space. How do we learn from that? And one of the things that we had actually started before the pandemic was we engaged with one of those larger communities to really have a community voice in what were some of the niche services that we needed to maybe bring to the table. So they felt like it wasn't all about taking things away from them, but it was about what they didn't quite understand was we have to gain these synergies from the efficiency perspective so we can reinvest back into the community and provide new and different offerings. We ended up engaging in a community conversation. And honestly, we probably could have done the work in three months, but it ended up taking about a year to get through that conversation. And there was just a lot of hurt feelings and those sorts of things in education. We had to educate and educate and really be thoughtful about who was on the committee and really turn them around to help them become our advocates. We have made a lot of progress in that space. As we move forward, we need to think about how to do that in other communities as we tackle other challenges. But, you know, you don't always have 12 months to make hard decisions. So it's just a really tough work. The tough work's not done. You're a big system covering a big geography. There's more scale work to be done. The new and unique experience of being a system through COVID and some of the community equity you've gained, but also the experience of working as a collaborative system. How's that going to help as you go forward planning and building a system at scale? I think we're just going to have to continue to be more mindful around that communication and how we speak with the community. In hindsight, there were a lot of things we were trying to do from the efficiencies perspective right out the gate. The community didn't see those additional benefits that were coming alongside because you had to pay for those additional benefits, right? It was a merger. So we had to create these savings to be able to reinvest. And so I think as they're seeing that work, we need to really make sure that we're communicating that work. We need to be communicating what it is we're trying to achieve and making sure they feel a part of it, but also recognizing that these are tough decisions we have to kind of work through. As challenging as COVID has been for the entire economy, I am hopeful that others may be in a little bit of a place to at least appreciate the business aspects of the challenging decisions that we're trying to make and that we're dealing with and how hard it has been on the rural hospitals, how hard it was going into the pandemic from an economic perspective, and now how hard it it is coming out of that and what does that future mean? So we'll see, but I'm just hopeful we can be mindful more and communicate more and engage more on that common path. Do you think your role as a strategy leader is going to be less on the numbers and here's what the answer is and more on communicating that answer? Is that going to be more of your time? I think so. Having to be more thoughtful about the communication, about the message, how we frame up the questions and how we educate. One of the things that I've learned not to overestimate when talking to the community is how little they really understand about the dynamics that we're dealing with. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just that healthcare is very, very complicated and people just don't always see all of that. But I have found when we take the time to explain certain pieces of it and a little bit about how the financing works and how charity works and those dynamics, there's more appreciation. I mean, you start to talk about value-based and risk and all of those things. Those are even more complicated concepts, but I think we're trying to talk more about value and trying to make it in terms that are meaningful to our employers in particular. I think that's an audience that we can definitely engage with. And I think we need to be really intentional about our employer friends and our community leader friends and trying to engage with them so they can help us help the community understand why we're headed down the path we're headed. 
Sounds like a challenging new role for strategy. Deeper expertise and be more the analytics center of excellence internally, and at the same time, be able to communicate that message to a totally different external audience in an efficient and meaningful way. That's a tough ask, but I know you're up to it, and I think many of our teams are up to it too. Any closing thoughts on how some of the changes that were necessitated over the last year changed your immediate role in strategy? Do you think the pendulum is going to swing back next year, two years, and things are going to be longer term, we're going to settle into a rhythm? Or do you think this is kind of the new strategic role for the foreseeable future? I think it's probably here to stay. COVID, my hope is that it has accelerated for us as an industry, the need for transformation. A lot of us in strategy have seen it coming. We've struggled with at different levels and different points around how much your particular organization is embracing that transformation. But COVID is really making the whole world rethink certain things that we've come to know and just understand and accept. It's going to be different in all kinds of realm of everyday life. And so I don't think it should be any different in healthcare. We are prime for some innovation and some transformation opportunities. And so I think we should take advantage of those. It worries me a lot when I see all the activity going on from venture capital and all of this stuff outside of the healthcare industry. And I don't think they can replace providers. But if we don't get on board quickly, we can find ourselves sort of lost. We're in a unique opportunity because we're providers. If we can embrace that approach to innovation and transformation, I think we can really lead the way in a meaningful way. So that's what I hope that we are doing. And to your other comment about strategy, it's never boring. That's one thing that I've always loved about strategy over the years. I have never, ever been able to say I've been bored in my job. Well, I think that's a great thought to close on, especially talking about a message to really engage providers and engage all your staff that, nope, we're on a transformation journey and COVID laid bare some of the challenges in the healthcare system. And great, let's be change agents to make that better. That's a powerful message. Allison, thanks so much for joining and sharing your perspective today. Thank you, Trevor. I appreciate it. This has been another episode of SG2 Perspectives. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review. We'd love to hear from you. Please connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter at SG2Healthcare. You can also reach us via email at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Reach out and let us know what healthcare trends are most important to you. Please also listen and subscribe to our colleague, Dr. Tom Villanueva's Modern Practice Podcast on Vizian's Medical Leadership Channel. Tom discusses key healthcare trends through the clinical leadership lens. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.